You're listening to a sermon podcast from Church at the Gates, where we desire for real people to meet the real Jesus and experience real change. We pray that God might use the next few minutes to draw you closer to Him. God, we are grateful this morning that we serve a God who is creator, who is transcendent. You are above all of this, and yet you see us and know us and desire us to know you. That you've given us a book with 66 books, all one story, revealing more of who you are, your promises and your goodness. God, revealing more of who we are, our brokenness and our need for salvation. So this morning, God, I, I pray that you would uh, God, give me wisdom as there is so much to cover. God, I pray that, uh, that your word would pierce hearts, would remind us of how good you are, remind us of how uh, faithful you are, that we might leave encouraged and ready for the journey. In your name we pray, amen. So today, we're starting uh, a new series called Every Book for All of Life. Uh, and it is, this is our, our second Sunday last week. Cam, our director of kids ministry, gave us an overview of Scripture, of the story of Scripture. We, we kind of brought to life that the Bible is not 66 different stories, but it is 66 different books, all uniting to tell one story of redemption. If you have not heard that, if you didn't know that, I would encourage you to go online, watch that. Cam does some great drawings of horses and things and thrones. And it, it, like, it is captivating. and views 50 minutes long. You will be encouraged and, uh, and move forward in your faith. So it, like if this is kind of confusing, if it's one story, I'd encourage you to watch that from last Sunday. It'll give you context. Today we are in Genesis. We're going to take over the next 66 weeks or so, one book each week. And so today we have Genesis to do all 50 chapters. So we're going to spend time at the very beginning, and then we're going to fly over the back half. Because what I think about Genesis is if you miss the foundation, if you miss like the, the opening overture, the opening themes of Genesis, you miss what Genesis is about, and then you kind of miss how the whole story unfolds from it. Uh, you think of, think of Genesis like a, a building foundation, that it begins to frame out, the concrete is poured, and as you walk around it, you can see something's going to be built on top of it, and based on the concrete thickness, you can see how tall it's going to be, and you can see how wide it's going to be. We don't quite know exactly how it's all going to turn out, but if we miss Genesis, we won't understand in Obadiah, Malachi, Acts, what God is doing. And so we're going to start here in Genesis. Uh, before we kind of get into that, I want to, I want to lay before you uh, three things our church believes about the Word of God that kind of frame out and underscore how we look and read Scripture. Number one is this. Uh, we believe every book is inspired by God. Uh, 2 Timothy 3 and uh, 2 Peter 2 uh, describe how God spoke to human authors, meaning to their heart and mind, and then to human authors using their own style, using their own, uh, using their own grammatical whatever, their own intelligence, wrote the Bible spoken by God. So when we, when we understand Scripture, we understand it as God-breathed. We understand all of Scripture as God-breathed, that every, every word from Genesis, from Genesis to Revelation, is all useful for us, all helpful for us, and all inspired by God. Number two, uh, we understand that every book is without error. And we understand that if God inspired these men, if he did one miracle, a second miracle to keep things without error is not hard. 
So we understand that God inspired these men. He's perfect, and he doesn't make mistakes. And we understand, when we say without error, what we mean is in the original manuscripts. So there's a ton of translations, there's a ton of different ideas, but we understand that every book that is written in the original manuscripts is without error, and it's without error in what it intends to communicate. And so as we understand Bible translation, we understand that, that like when we look at the Old Testament and New Testament, we are exceedingly confident based on the plethora, the magnitude of what we have in terms of manuscripts and, and codices and all these things. We are very confident that what we have honors the original text, honors uh, the original manuscripts. And so we believe that God inspired and that what God intended to teach in the original manuscripts, of which we've got many of them, is without error. Number three, we understand that every book is important for the Christian. We are uh, in, in the church age, we are New Testament Christians. And so, like, we understand our place in history. There's creation, there's the Old Testament, there's the cross, there's the church age. We're, like, right here. And yet, if we decide to say, you know what, the Old Testament isn't as important, those minor prophets are minor for a reason, you know, like, like whatever we would say, if we, if we decide to disregard part of Scripture, we become incomplete disciples. Because what we understand is that every word of God is profitable for reproof, for teaching, correction. And every word, every word, every precept points to Jesus. And so we understand that every book, every word is important for us, which is why we're doing this, because we think the more we know about God's word, the more we understand how it's connected, the better disciples, the stronger we'll love Jesus, and the more we'll want others to know him as well. And so what we'll do is each week we'll say, hey, here's a book, here's why it's written, here's the structure, here's why it's significant, and then we'll give you a flyover of the book of the things that we think are really critical for you to learn, really critical for you to, to know, which means there's no chance, no chance we're going to cover everything. I'm telling you that right away in Genesis, we're not even trying to answer a bunch of the questions. We're trying to show you what the point of Genesis is and how it fits in the larger story. So, on to Genesis. Who wrote Genesis? Moses. Moses did. We see in Exodus, Numbers, Joshua, Matthew, Mark, Luke, that it is clear from church, from the way the Bible describes itself, Moses saying, I wrote these, and then the New Testament referring back to Moses, that there is no question in the minds of those in Scripture that Moses wrote this book. So we can safely and easily just say, Moses compiled this, well, and the first five books of the Bible. Uh, the structure works like this. The first 11 chapters are really event-based. There's the creation, there's fall, there's the flood, there's the Tower of Babel. And what we understand the author is doing is he's creating this narrative history that is global, that is how God looks at humanity in general and how he deals uh, with brokenness and sin. And then we see from 12 to 50, the, the story of, uh, of or Moses writes the story and begins to zoom in on people and how God deals with people and how God calls people out to himself between Isaac, uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And so that's roughly the structure. 1 through 11 are event-based, and then 12 through 50 are God's working out and his calling out of his people. Why is Genesis important? Why is Genesis important? It sets the stage for hope. It sets the stage for hope. Because what we're going to see really early on in Genesis is like God creates this really cool, perfect scene where everything is good, everything is how it should be, and like a week into that, 
Humanity screws it up pretty devastatingly. So Genesis sets the stage for hope in our own lives and hope for those who don't yet know him. Creation. Creation. We're going to go through the first 11 chapters and then the 12 through 50. We're going to start with the event of creation. Genesis 1, 1 says this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This opening verse of Genesis answers the most fundamental question of our existence, the most fundamental question of existence in general. And that question is this, why is there something instead of nothing? Why is there something instead of nothing? Why are we here? How do we get here? The author says, in the beginning, God. You see, it's critical to answer this question right because how we answer this question, why is there something instead of nothing, gives trajectory to our lives. If the answer to that question is there is no God, that we are here by the byproduct of random chance and millions of years, we will struggle to identify ourselves or have objective morality. We will struggle, we will be unmoored. If the answer to that question is there is something or someone that created us, we will be inextricably bound to that person or thing to help us define ourselves, our purpose, and our morality. Moses' answer to the question is, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. Before the universe, there was God. Before the stars, there was God. Before there was planets, there was God. Before there were elk we couldn't find, (laughs) there was God. Before there was anything in our universe, there was God. Notice what, 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 the, what the author is saying is God was always there. God is always there, was always there. He exists, has existed. Nothing causes his existence. Uh, in philosophy, we call God the uncaused cause. That is, he has always existed. Nothing causes. He wasn't birthed. He wasn't generated. But God exists He is self-existent. This is a theological theme of Scripture that starts in the first four words of Genesis 1. And it's an important theological thing to understand. And if we get this wrong, we begin to make God smaller and our salvation more tenuous. God is self-existent. The the theological term, if you want to get really nerdy, is aseity. That is, he is self-existent. He needs no generation. He exists of his own nature. Nothing caused God to exist. He was not born. God is self-existent. He doesn't need us to exist. What a lame God that would be. Right? If, he was, if his existence was based on us. He is completely autonomous. He exists outside of his creation. For the Christian, the beginning of all things must start with God. There is no equivocation in Scripture. That if we, if we are to get ourselves right, if we are to understand our purpose, if we are to understand who we are and how we're wired, we start with God. If we start with anything else generating us or creating us, we are prone to the, to the whims and fancies of our own hearts and whatever the world has. The first chapter of Genesis has God creating everything. He says nine times. It says nine times, God said this, and then it happened. God said this, and then it happened. It says nine times, or seven times, in the first chapter of Genesis, it is good. He creates it by saying it, and then declares it good. 
The goal of Genesis 1 really isn't to make a scientific point. It's not to prove some point. It's to illustrate a theological truth that then is supposed to frame how we view the world. In other words, what I'm saying is like if we try to apply a modern science and a modernist mind to uh, Genesis 1, we often will miss the point. The point is God said, God said, God said, it is good, it is good, it is good. The, 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 what we're supposed to take away from all of this is that, is that God created this. Moses understood that it was God who did it. And the Israelites were to take this and say, man, this is how everything started. There was chaos. Genesis 1-2 says was, the earth was formless and void. The Hebrew, it's, it's a metaphor for uh, chaos. That God spoke into chaos and created order. God spoke into chaos and created peace. God spoke into chaos and created what could not be created without him. Order, peace. Hebrew calls it, Hebrew calls it shalom. God's work brought order, design, and purpose for all of creation. That this is the underlying theological point of Genesis 1. That if we want to understand really the main thrust of Genesis 1 is that at the origin of everything stands a God who speaks and creates. Genesis 1.26 shows us the, uh, the, how God created humanity. Then God said, verse 26, you can follow along in your copies of God's word or on the screens. Let us make man in our own image, after our own likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. The image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the heavens, over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. What's really interesting is if you, if you read the Hebrew and understand what's happening here, there is a poetic climax. Now, this is pretty normal in Hebrew poetry when you see uh, there's this building of momentum. And when you get to verse 26, 27, and 28, what you understand is the pinnacle of creation, the most important thing that God creates is mankind. And, and, and I say that only to say this. We are intrinsically more valuable than everything else in creation. We are not equal in value to whales wolves, mountains, any of that. That God is showing us that of all that he's created, when you get to Genesis 26, 27, and 28, there is something different he creates within us. He gives us the image of God, which makes us intrinsically more valuable in general and in specifically to him, that he has given us a part of himself. When it says the image of God, what that means is we share characteristics of God that he only shares with us, like chimpanzees and other animals. They don't share these things. What that means is we have a soul. We've been given something that reflects who God is and given a soul which gives us, get this, the capacity to know him. The image of God means that God like hardwired, like checked with him in our hearts. I message that we have a direct line with him that other created beings don't have. We are special, treasured, we are to be known by God because of our souls. This is an act of a God who desires to be known and to know his creation. Humanity then is not a product of randomness. Humanity is not the product of blind chance in millions of years. We can't derive that from the text. We'd have to add that to the text. 
We are the product of a transcendent yet personal. Transcendent just means above everything. He's bigger, larger, outside of it. He is the thing on which everything revolves. He is above it all. And yet in spite of that, he doesn't stay there. He wells, he, he like comes down into our hearts, into our souls, so he can speak to us into existence. And the theological theme worth writing down is this. God has created us to know him and to be known by him. As we understand creation, God is not a deist. He did not just wind the clock and walk away. He desires deeply to know you. He gave you part of who he was. He gave you a soul that we could commune with him, that we might have a relationship with him. God is not surprised with humanity. He is not distant from humanity. We are created to know him. As large, let's just fathom this for a moment. As many galaxies as there are, as, as, as immense as space is, all that he's created, he looks at some small blue dot, finds you in your home, finds you right here, and says, that's the thing I love most. In all of creation, humanity gets his love, gets his pursuit. Ultimately, if we believe God has created us, we are then accountable to him for how we live our lives. This is, the, this is the answer to the question, why is there something instead of nothing? If we answer God, by virtue of that answer, we are then bound to him. We're bound to ask the question, God, how should I live? If you've created me with purpose and, you've, and you created us out of, out of chaos and you bring order to it, then God, I need to know how to live my life in order so that I may have use, they may have uh, what you've created me to be. And here's the thing, if we're accountable to God, this is like poisonous treachery to the world. Because we live in an age where uh, the greatest defining characteristic of who we are is to be derived from our hearts. That what our desires say about us, what our hopes say about us, that we are to define who we are. The greatest good is our self-definition. Our desires are our greatest good. Me defining myself by my virtue, by my skewed sense is the greatest God. Another way to say this, who I am is the most, who I say I am is the most important thing. The first chapter of Genesis, the first words of Genesis gut that philosophy. That the Christian cannot, cannot suffer that philosophy. That if God has created us, we are bound to pursue him and to live as he has designed. And this is creation. God has always existed. God created everything with order and a purpose. He created humanity with an order and a purpose. He is king over us. He gets to tell us how to live our lives. And we will find our ultimate joy, our ultimate peace our ultimate design when we pursue him and how he's designed us. That's just chapter one. Like driving 80 miles down, like, like you just sit there and there's so much here. The, the foundation is being laid for, for who God is and how we relate to him and what that means then for us. Chapter two adds to the creation narrative and climaxes with, uh, with the story of Adam and Eve uh, and, and the, the framework that God has created male and female and they're meant to be together in marriage and that that is how God has designed things and all things were good. Uh, in chapter one, they were good. In chapter two, they were good. In chapter three, the wheels fall off this thing. Like right away which leads us to the fall, the creation and fall. Uh, fall is a theological term. It's been used over the centuries to describe what happened in Genesis 3 when sin enters into the world. Mankind falls from their status as, from, as innocent 
able to obey to a state of guilty disobedience. In other words, when we were with God, when we were walking in the garden, we were innocent. We could walk with him, we could talk with him, we obeyed innocently. Genesis 3.6 picks up the story. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was uh, to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So Adam and Eve are sitting in the garden, enjoying time with God, and God says, listen, you can, you can eat from any tree in the garden, but just not this tree. It's forbidden for you. And so Adam and Eve kind of go over to the tree, and uh, Adam's standing next to Eve, and, and up slithers the serpent. The serpent begins talking, which is shocking just in general. And, uh, and then Eve and the serpent begin to have this dialogue, right? Begin to chat. Begin to have a little debate about, but what did God really say here? And so she carries on, and then she grabs the fruit. I mean, after all, God didn't say anything about holding the fruit. Like, certainly could hold the fruit, right? Grabs it out, looks at it, continues to talk with Satan. She eats the fruit and shares it with Adam. Adam, this whole interaction is silent. This, this woman he's been given to, to cherish, to protect, to love, he does nothing to counter Satan's lies. Stay silent while she grabs it. Stay silent while she bites it and then takes one as well. He defaults on his responsibility to protect and love his wife. Verse seven, notice what happens next. Then the eyes of both were open and they knew they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. In other words, they see what, what, what truly is there. They are naked and ashamed. And with, uh, with God, they were naked and unashamed that they were innocent. They were known by God, protected by God and their state was of innocence and beauty. And over here after sin, you've got nakedness and shame. And so they do what any of us would do. They grab the nearest fig tree, Right? Begin sowing leaves and do their best. Guess they do their best with fig leaves to cover their shame. They've been walking with God. And, and to try to cover their shame, they do only the most natural human thing. The God is omnipotent. He created all this. So certainly we can hide our shame from him with leaves. So they put on this leaf, uh, this, this leaf underwear or whatever. I want you to... Loin cloth, I don't know what that is. They cover themselves with leaves, is the point. I want you to hold on to that image. I want you to hold on to the image. We're going to revisit this. Of Adam and Eve, in shame, having sinned, doing their best to cover their shame with a bunch of leaves. Okay. And God is good to his word. He says, look, if you eat this fruit, you're going to die. There will be consequences for your disobedience. What he's saying, Genesis uh, 3.23 says this, Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work from the ground from which he was taken. No longer do Adam and Eve walk in the presence of God. No longer do they live in perfect goodness with creation. No longer do man and woman have a relationship without strife. Everything is broken by sin. We understand that their relationship with God, their relationship with the other, even creation groans, Romans 8, says under the weight of sin, that so cosmic was that moment that it affected all of creation, that there's no part of creation that stands unstained from sin. That's how devastating that moment was for all of us. Their punishment was loss of relationship with God, loss of living in paradise, and an introduction to death and pain. Prior to this, there was no death, there was no pain. Those are all products of the fall, along with mosquitoes. <laughs> I 
Like, it's what I love about God and his stories, like, even in the midst of devastatingly bad news, like, the kind of bad news that, that has eternal consequences, the kind of bad news that, like, if runs unabated, will curse everything forever. Genesis 3.15 pops up. And he's cursing the serpent, Satan. He says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, that is Eve, between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. That we understand this to be the first promise of the good news, the first promise of the gospel. Adam and Eve have just sinned. Everything is wrecked. The curse is taken, and, and the creation begins to groan under the weight of sin and all of this. And God looks at the serpent and says, listen, the best you're going to produce, the most evil thing you're going to produce, the best it's ever going to do is to bruise the heel of the son of the one who comes. That in that moment when Satan, with jubilee, says, I've got them, I've ruined creation, God says, no, there is a time coming where you will leverage all of your power, all of your authority, all that you have, and the best that you will accomplish will be to bruise the heel of the one I sent who will crush your head. This is the promise of Genesis that begins to weave like a golden thread through all of Scripture. And it starts like 10 seconds after Adam and Eve broke everything. It's a promise that mercy is coming. It's a promise that everything will be made new. It's a promise that God will not allow sin to reign forever. It's a promise that he will act in order to bring peace and order back to creation. Adam and Eve are no longer in a state of innocence. They are in a state of guilt. And, and the children they have, and, and sin is inherited. Genesis 8.21 says, For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. That something, something cosmically happens. That sin, sin is not something we do. It becomes something we are from birth. Not that, that we are irreparably evil, the most evil things that have been ever created, but we are born in a state of guilt from the moment we're born. That innocence is no longer an option for us of our own accord. That we are born with a state of sin out of the womb. We're born slaves to our sin nature. And so look, look. Read Genesis this week. Take three or four hours. Like, put Hulu on Do Not Disturb. Put your phone over there. Like, read Genesis for like three hours, three or four hours, taking one sitting. Here's what you're going to see. You were created by God. You have a purpose given by God. You are broken. You are a sinner. And you can't save yourself. That failure is called sin. But you're also going to see this. You're going to see that God is a God of mercy who pursues the people who run from him. The story of Genesis. It's the story of our lives. Theological theme to take away. We will be accountable to God for our lives. He created us. He told us how to live. He tells us how to live. We rebel. We run from him. And we will stand accountable to him for our sin. And we see this pretty acutely in the next kind of framework. Creation, fall, and then flood. Flood. Genesis 6, 5 and 6. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his hearts was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on earth and it grieved him to his heart. And so what's happened is they've got the fall and, and, and mankind is, is growing in number and fruitful and multiplying. But what's happened is because of sin, uh, sin is increasing as, as men increase. And the Lord looks down from his place in heaven and says, every man's heart is wicked from the beginning. And the Lord looks down and says, I regret having made these people. Years had passed. 
Generations of men and women born into sin. Generations had passed and God had stayed his wrath. God had stopped his wrath. He had not exercised his wrath. But in the story of Noah, we're prone to think, man, God is really capricious. No, there's like thousands of years between the fall and Noah. He waited. He waited and waited and waited and waited for his people to come back to him. And they didn't. So he looks down and he sees something must be done. God, like you sin against God, there is wrath to come. Enough was enough. God decides, there's a, God decides, as he's looking at, there's only one man who's righteous, Noah. And let's just dispel this room real quick. He wasn't perfect. He was the only one who had faith to do anything for God. He's still the guy that after the, after the flood gets like passed out drunk. Like, it's not exactly what we think of a saint, right? Like, like we just, we're saying Noah wasn't perfect. When God says that, he's saying, listen, he's the only one who has faith enough in me to obey. And so he says, you know what? I got a task for you. Build an ark, and every two of every kind are going to come up there. And the rains came down, and the flood came up, and we sing this song, and we put this picture of the flood, and it's beautiful. Except if we think that's what the flood is, we misunderstand all of the death. Like, the rains come up, 40 days. Do you know what they're looking out and seeing? Dead bodies floating. Like, Sunday school is a lot more, like, tame. <laughs> like, I grew up, my mom loves Noah's Ark. Like, that's her, like any Noah's Ark art, and it's all beautiful, and it's all, it's all before the wrath, or after the wrath, or like the rainbow, or like the animals going in. There are, isn't a lot of great art for the carnage that was Noah's Ark. It's a picture of God's wrath that all of us who are created owe to our creator an account. And he is long-suffering. He is patience. Romans says it is, it, is, it is his patience, it is kindness that's meant to lead us to repentance. And yet there is a time where God says enough is enough and you need to pay what you owe. And you, can, you can't pay what you owe. When we read the story of Noah, we understand a few things. God's wrath is slowly kindled. God's wrath will come for those who don't turn and God's wrath will not undermine his promise. That we see, we see the brutality, we see, we see the wrath of God in the flood killing almost everything, and yet not everything. That he made this promise in Genesis 3.15, and he said, look, if I can only save Noah and his family, that'll be enough. I'm going to keep my promise through them. That as bad as things are, as wicked and as wrathful, he says, you know what, I've kept that promise, I made that promise, I'm going to keep it. That God's wrath will not deter, will not undermine his promise. The story of Noah and the ark is a graphic depiction of the lengths to which God will go to extend mercy to keep his promises. Look, we understand it's also the extent to which God will go to punish sin. But if we stop there, we miss the mercy of those in the ark. That God kept them for this to keep his promise. That leads us to the tower, creation, fall, flood, tower. Verse nine, therefore, uh, its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused all the language of the earth and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. And so we have as humanity had, instead of uh, being fruitful and multiplying over the face of the earth, had come together. They had learned the same language and began speaking the same thing and began building uh, this tower for their own name. We're gonna make these bricks and we're gonna build this tower and it's going to be a glory unto us. In essence, what we see is we see them rejecting filling the earth and rejecting God's image and saying, if we all do this together, you know whose image is gonna be awesome? Ours. They built a tower. And so 
The Lord exercises judgment by sending them out in new languages, in new people groups all over the world. You say, well, where's his mercy here? Two, two things, two ways. Number one, chiefly his mercy is he did not wipe them out. He didn't go, start over. He sent them off, different languages. Number two, another act of mercy here is he restrained their disobedience. God says, listen, if we let them go, what other wicked acts are they going to do? If we don't stop this, they're going to end up doing more and more wickedness. And so his, his movement in there is an act of mercy that they are not so irreparably, uh, so irreparably sinful and rebellious that, they, that, that like God has to extend his wrath in that way. So he says, no, I want to restrain them from themselves. In the first 11 chapters, we see this, uh, these three things, themes uh, acutely. God's creative power as king, God's destructive wrath, and God's promised mercy. That when we see the setting, the foundation, really the 11, the 11 chapters are the foundation for Genesis, but these themes that start here go through the rest of Scripture. That God is sovereign king. He created everything, so we owe him our lives, owe him our allegiance. Number, number two, that like our sin has earned us wrath. And number three, there is mercy that has been promised. And so we zoom in then, chapters 12 through 50. We zoom in to main characters, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. And early in chapter 12, if you've got your copies of God's word, if you're like the underlining type or highlighting type, or if you're like the type who takes a picture on their phone and posts on Instagram, like this is a verse for you. Genesis 12, 1 through 3. This is the promise Genesis 3.15, your offspring will crush your head, will bruise his heel, and her offspring will crush your head. The promise of the gospel, the promise of the Messiah. Genesis 12, 1 through 3, God speaking to Abram, a character, a new one. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. It is the call of Abraham. We call it the Abrahamic covenant or the Abrahamic promise where God looks at a guy in the Ur of the Chaldees, which is on a map somewhere and says, listen, I want you to go from where you are all the way over here. I want you to leave your family, leave all your prosperity. I want you to walk over here to this place I will give you. And if you do that, I'll make you a great nation. And from that nation, all people will be blessed. It's an expansion of the promise in Genesis 3. That it becomes specific to a person, which will be a people, Israel, from which the Messiah will come, Jesus. In chapters 1 through 11, God displays his character through creation. In 12 through 50, he displays his character through calling out his people. The theological theme that is main in the last part of Genesis is God's providence moves his promises. God's providence moves his, pro his promises. This is a theme that is all throughout Scripture, but as you read Genesis 12 through 50, especially the story of Joseph, you see that God moves at just the right time and just the right way and just the right place so that his will gets done. God's providence uh, is how we understand God using human instances, good and bad, to accomplish his will. Tony Evans, the great preacher, used to say this, uh, God's providence is the hand of God in the glove of history. 
God's providence is the hand of God in the globe of history. In other words, no human event, no human ruler can thwart God's plans. Ultimately, all of history will bend to God's will. That it will end just as God's promised. That no ruler, no despot, no molecule, no person can change that. And so we begin in Genesis 12 through 50 to see God moving in his various people through his plan. What's so interesting is, like, you would not choose any of the people God chooses in Genesis 12 through 50 to be these people. They're all a bunch of knuckleheads. Like, full of doubt, full of sin, full of, like, just deep faithlessness. And so God's providential plan in just Genesis alone overcomes barrenness. So God makes the promise to Abram and says, listen, from your line, I'm going to bless the nation. And you know what happened to, to Sarah? She was barren. And so Abram's like, hey, I don't know if you know how this works, but there's a line that's got to come from her, and she's barren. And then Isaac marries Rebekah, and you know what happens to her? Barren. Jacob marries Rachel, you know what happened to her? Barren. Regardless of human brokenness, human situations, human, human difficulties, God's providence overcomes those things. It overcomes idolatry in his people. It overcomes our own doubt and dis- disobedience. In Genesis 7, uh, we, we, or Genesis 50, we see that, uh, that there's envy in families that God is even able to overcome. And so God calls out Abraham and says, come to me. And Abraham goes. And it is a mixed bag with Abraham. He's faithful. He's faithless. As soon as God calls him, he goes. They go to Egypt. And Abraham tells, hey, listen, you're a beautiful wife, and, uh, and I don't want to die. And so I know if we walk into Egypt together, uh, they're going to kill me to get to you. So let's just tell them uh, you're my sister. And she goes along with it. Pharaoh sleeps with her and says, hey, wait a second. There's a curse on my house. Why didn't you trust God? Why didn't you tell me this is your sister? That's the first act of the fabled Abraham in the story. Broken, faithless man. As we see through Genesis, we see God's attention to the holiness of his people. That he says to Abraham, you need to be set apart. You need to be holy. You need to follow me. He see, we see God's wrath against wickedness. We see the wickedness, the extreme wickedness that happened in Sodom and Gomorrah. And we see his wrath come down like sulfur and fire. We see God's mercy and faithfulness uh, extend to his people. Consider these verses. We think about the mercy of God in the story of the second half of Genesis. Genesis 19 says this. So, so it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent, and, and sent Lot out in the midst to overthrow, and he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Genesis 30, 22. Then God remembered Rachel, and he listened to her, and he opened her womb. God's remembrance of his promise is mercy. Write that down. God's remembrance of his promise is mercy. That the fact that he doesn't forget his promises is merciful to us. And, and what, what, what this is like, uh, his mercy and grace is remembrance. It's like a courtroom where we go in and God is the judge, but he's also our advocate. And so God says, listen, you're faithless and, and, and you need to be judged. And then God, our advocate says, hey, listen, don't you remember what you said? And God says, I remember not guilty. And he says, hey, I was, uh, uh, God says, hey, you were faithless. You doubted me when I could, when I could produce this line. And that's true. But God, don't you remember? I remember. With every faithlessness, with every doubt, with every broken peace, God says, I remember. I remember my promise. I remember my promise. I remember my promise. I'm going to make good. I remember my promise. It is an act of faith that when we are faithless, God goes, hey, you forgot your faith. I didn't forget mine. I didn't forget mine. And this is how it is with God and his children. 
We need that promise from Genesis 3.15 to be true. And it is true, and it's true in Jesus Christ. Hey, you guys remember the weird fig leaves? Remember those fig leaves? I want to put that image back in your mind briefly. Two weirdos with leaves on. Adam and Eve have sinned. They had moved from a state of innocence to guilt, naked and ashamed. They tried to, shut, they tried to cover uh, their shame as well as they could. The fig leaves, I want you to understand this, the fig leaves were the human attempt, the first human attempt to cover sin. Adam and Eve do their best to cover sin, do their best to stitch together so God can't see that. It wasn't enough then, and it's not enough now. They were before God, guilty and ashamed. Fig leaves crying to cover it. And it's interesting. God does something really interesting before he kicks them out of the garden. Genesis 3.21, I want to throw this up there. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them, to which we all, that's really good. Like fig leaves chafing, you know, all these things. And we ask ourselves, that's a really interesting thing. The fig leaves were interesting. And it's really interesting, before he kicks them out, he puts on them clothes, right? God covered their shame before banishing them. What God had to do then if we understand this correctly, God had to take an animal. He had to kill it. He had to skin it. He had to stitch together a garment to cover, the nature, to cover their sin. In other words, an animal had to die. Blood had to be shed in order for Adam and Eve's sin to be covered. It's the same for us. Then in that little prefiguring of the sacrifice of Jesus, we understand that the best we can ever do before God is to stitch together some fig leaves what God offers for us is to put on the holiness of Jesus Christ to be saved forever. Isaiah 53, 4 through 6 says this. This is Isaiah speaking of Jesus. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. The Lord has laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity, the sin of us all. Jesus is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And that promise started in Genesis 3.15, expanded in Genesis 12, and God has providentially moved it through history that us, sitting thousands of years from that moment, can look up and find Jesus dying on the cross and his resurrected body waiting to embrace us, waiting to cover us. He died as our substitute in our place for our sins. He died the death that we deserve. And so listen, if you don't know Jesus today, would you believe today the best you could do is to cover your sin with figs? The best you could do was to cobble together some brokenness, some, something that won't even cover your shame, would you believe today that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is the promised Messiah? Would you trust Jesus today? Maybe say a different way. Would you enter into the ark of Jesus' salvation and be spared the wrath of God forever? On the other side of that is new life. On the other side of that is transformation. On the other side of that is eternity. Believe today in the promise of God. Trust him and find life. We can't save ourselves. You can't save yourself. That's why God made that promise. Give your faith and your life to God this morning and follow him forever. He can be trusted. He never forgets a promise. Let's pray. God, we are grateful that we, 
that you have given us this word, that you've given us a book that is tied together, that tells the story of your love for us, your love for people who run from you, who don't quite get you, who don't quite get it. And we are grateful that like, we can't fig leaf ourselves into pleasing you. That we all have run astray. We all need you to do the work. God, we see that you made that promise with Abraham. You made it unconditional. You walked through the sacrifice, showing that what was gonna happen, the salvation to come, was gonna be a work of you. And so God, we recognize that, that we can't save ourselves, and that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave, that we might be saved, that all the work is done, and that we can be different and changed now and in eternity. God, pierce our hearts. Make us more grateful. God, thank you for Genesis the story it tells, the hope it brings. God, would you build into our hearts and lives a deep love for your word that where we can see these threads of beautiful connection that are threads of your love for us from before time. God, we praise you and are grateful for you. God, would you change us today for your glory and our joy. Amen. Thank you for listening to a sermon podcast from Church at the Gates. For more information about our church or to connect with us about what you've just heard, please visit churchinmissoula.com.